Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Social distancing and limiting our contacts with others will be a fact of life for a long time to come. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? The plans to reopen the country are close to being finalised. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Lucas, who I'm sure is very, very busy, but spending a bit of time talking to us today. Caroline, I know who you are, but people listen to this podcast around the world. Just tell us who you are. Okay, so I am a Green Party MP, in fact, the only Green Party MP at Westminster, and I represent the constituency of Brighton Pavilion on the South Coast. Caroline, how is the pandemic affecting you and your work and your day-to-day routine? Well, it means that I'm sat at my desk for hours and hours and hours without moving. And the reason that I'm doing that is just because of the volume of casework that I have right now. So there are so many people in my constituency in Brighton who are just so worried about their jobs, about their businesses, about loved ones who may be in care homes, and they're concerned about whether they're going to be safe. So my email box is just absolutely overflowing. So I'm so blessed to have a wonderful team working with me there. Some of them are in London, some of them are in Brighton, but together we are trying to work through this huge mound of concern out there. And at the same time, just since this week at least, of course, Westminster Parliament is meeting virtually. So we've also had the opportunity to put questions to ministers to take part in debates virtually via Zoom as well. So I have now become an awful lot more familiar and accustomed to Zoom than I ever imagined that I would be. And Caroline, how was the nature of the questions being asked of you, the help being asked from you, your caseload, how has that changed over the last six weeks? I think it's the urgency that's really changed and that a lot of it is to do with government schemes that have been introduced, you know, in good faith to try to help businesses through the months of this pandemic. But almost by definition, wherever you draw up rules for new disbursement of grants, let's say, then there will always be businesses that fall the wrong side of the thresholds. There will always be things that the government hadn't thought about. So here in Brighton, we have a, a huge number of small businesses, very small businesses, And many of those business owners take their salaries, for example, in dividends rather than a normal pay-as-you-earn income. And for that reason, they are excluded from the government schemes. Or there are 
what seem like quite artificial thresholds when it comes to your rateable value of your business and whether or not that means you're eligible for schemes. Or there are issues with whether or not the banks are actually going to pass on the money that the government is asking them to lend to businesses. Or there are issues around the amount of personal protective equipment in our care homes in particular right now. So I think it's the fact that so many of these questions pretty much do come down sometimes to life and death. And if not life and death, then it feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. And Brighton has always been a kind of very lively, feisty, non-conformist kind of place. Also, of course, lots of people come to Brighton for the sun and to the sea and all of that. I noticed there was a row the other day about one of our national newspapers having a photograph that suggested lots of people were out and about in Brighton, but then people alleged that the photograph had been doctored in various ways. What's your kind of sense of how well lockdown is being observed? I think it is being observed pretty well by people in Brighton. I mean, as you say, Brighton is a destination for others to come to. And we've had some very sunny weekends recently, then for sure there have been people trying to get to the city. But by and large, I think most people are following the lockdown guidance. I think one of the positive things out of this whole nightmare has been to see just how the community in the city has just come together in such an inspiring way. I mean, I know this is something that's happening around the country, around the world, but you know, when you see so many new community groups coming together, when you hear people saying that they never knew their neighbours before, they didn't know who was in their street before, and now they do, and now they kind of trust people in a way that they didn't before. So that I'm hanging on to right now, because that feels like, you know, in all of this doom and gloom, the fact that, that those mutual aid groups just leapt up and didn't wait for government, they just got on with it, I think has been, yeah, truly inspiring. Well, Caroline, that is a perfect prompt for the question that we ask every guest on this podcast. Caroline Lucas, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? Well, I was reflecting on that question and it seems to me that so much of political failure comes down to a failure of imagination. And I think what this pandemic has called on us to do is to show imagination. And I think, to be fair, governments around the world have been employing more imagination to meet this pandemic than they have ever managed to marshal to deal with the climate crisis, for example. And so I think what's exciting in one sense is the way in which the definition of the politically possible has now been massively expanded. And my big hope is that going forward, we won't allow it to contract. And therefore, you know, when you see, for example, a government literally just wiping off all of the debt of our National Health Service overnight, That in the usual scheme of things would have been such big news, you know, it was just relegated to a footnote, actually, because so much else was happening that day. Or to see governments effectively nationalise whole industries or to step in and to ensure that people that wouldn't otherwise be paid get money or to make sure that the homeless now have to be housed. You know, these were things that many of us have been lobbying for for years. You know, the scandal of homelessness, for example, even on the streets of a city like Brighton has been massive. And yet, I think what this pandemic has shown us is that when the political will is there, and when there's a genuinely shared sense of urgency, things that seemed previously politically impossible do become not just possible, but even perhaps inevitable. So I think what should and must change going forward is that wider sense of the politically possible. I think it is recognising that governments can act for good. And so the old kind of stereotype around, you know, private good, public bad, that I think has been really put to bed. We've seen that there are certain things that only governments can do when it comes to 
you know, bailing out certain industries or ensuring that finance gets to people that really need it. And so that bigger power of governments, I think, is something that potentially can be really exciting going forward. So at the RSA, we have a kind of account of the conditions that make it most likely that crisis will lead to change. And we say that's when three conditions apply, when there is a prior demand and capacity for change before the crisis. Change doesn't come from nowhere. There has to have been something beforehand. Then in the crisis, the demands get reinforced, but also the future gets prefigured. There are things that happen, as you have just said, in the crisis, which suggest how things could be different. And then thirdly, and critically, as you emerge from crisis and people are more open to doing things differently, perhaps open to the idea they might have to make some sacrifices, you have the political coalitions and the concrete policy ideas, the innovations ready to take advantage of that kind of moment of openness. So at one level in relation to the environment, one thing that's kind of interesting is how many people have said that they've enjoyed the fact that there aren't so many cars around, that they can hear the birds sing, that they seem to be able to see the stars more clearly. They spent more time in the garden. And I noticed that various places around the world, I think Milan have said the cars will never come back after the crisis. So do you sense that one of the things that might be changing here is our very relationship to nature and the environment around us? I absolutely do. I mean, I think it's been really interesting, for example, to see the outcry when certain parks in London were going to be closed because there was a concern about social distancing. And suddenly, I think you got the sense that people recognise just how important, for example, access to green space is, that there should be a right to green space, and that it is vital not just for our physical health, but for our mental health as well. So I do feel that there has been this kind of reappraisal of things that we've taken for granted. And certainly, I think just anecdotally and what you hear is that that people are, because they've been forced to slow down, sometimes been forced to stay in, even if they only have access to a window and don't even have access to a garden, you know, being able to see the trees or being able to see something that is an indication of nature pretty much carrying on as before is immensely reassuring. And I think you know, for a country that is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world, if we can hang on to this renewed sense of how important nature is to our physical and our mental health, then there is a chance, at least, according to the formula that you just set out, the three conditions, in a sense, for change being lasting, that that could make a difference. Because I think that will key in as well to the prior movements, you know, for example, the young people who were taking to our streets in such numbers just last year in terms of the youth climate strikes, people that were taking action in terms of Extinction Rebellion, the people that weren't actually taking the action, but nonetheless were supporting it. I think in terms of that condition around that prior demand, I think we had it. And I think that the pandemic itself is growing it as well, if you like. So although it's not taken for granted, and and for sure, there'll be loud voices of vested interests who, when the pandemic is over, and as it ends, will be wanting to get back to so-called business as usual. I think there are going to be an awful lot of other voices that will be saying, no, we deserve something better. One of the challenges we're finding is giving people the bandwidth, the headroom to be able to think about what needs to be done to hold on to some of these changes, while at the same time they're dealing with the incredible pressure of the crisis itself. And the problem is that unless we prepare, unless we think through how we're going to pedestrianise or how it is we're going to change our systems in order that we can hold on to some of the benefits of lower activity, to do that, you really need to do the thinking now so that you're ready. But not many people have got that time. Are you able to be thinking about and having conversations about the future at the same time as dealing with the kind of casework you're talking about? I'm making the time to do that because I think the decisions that are being taken literally now 
by governments and by local authorities will dictate the kind of trajectory we're on as we come out of this pandemic. And so, for example, just over the last 48 hours, we've seen our government sort of giving bailouts to the aviation industry without any condition at all and in complete contradiction to what they've actually been saying in in climate change meetings that have been happening virtually over the past few days. And so we've had Dominic Raab saying at the Petersburg summit that countries must rebuild after COVID by, and I quote, investing in industries and infrastructure that can turn the tide on climate change. Yet at the same time, EasyJet has just got a £600 million bailout. We know that the oil companies are also having their debt bought up by the Bank of England. So it seems to me that, you know, it's not a luxury to be vigilant about what's happening right now, because if the wrong choices are made now, then our chances of coming out of this pandemic in a way that doesn't exacerbate the even bigger crisis of climate are going to be severely constrained. Well, let's turn to that bigger picture. So one of the things I heard a lot in the earlier stages of this pandemic was people pointing out the eerie similarity between organisations, United Nations, other groups who have been arguing for years about the risk of pandemic, the inevitability of pandemic and urging spending on preparation, building resilience, developing the right responses. And a lot of that just didn't happen. And that's part of why we are where we are. And people saying that's so similar to the kinds of arguments people are making about climate change. So that argument was, can we learn the lesson through this, that if you don't prepare for future risks, and of course, climate change isn't a risk, it's a reality, then, you know, sooner or later, that failure to invest in the future will come back and hurt you. So do you see that parallel? And are you confident that as we come out of this, that the pandemic, one of the shifts it will have in our imagination is to recognise that we have to invest for the long term? You asked me if I'm confident. I think it would be a, an ambitious thing to say I'm confident. But I think there is everything to play for because I think, you know, there has been a, a real level of shock as people have recognised just how many warnings have gone unheeded when it came to preparing for the moment that we found ourselves in now. And that goes for the warnings that we've had about how intensive agriculture expansion and how deforestation and how environmental degradation in itself makes pandemics more likely. And that has been said for a great many years, or even something just as recent as last year, when we know that there were security assessments that were telling us how important it would be to make sure that we were prepared for a pandemic by having the proper personal protective equipment in stock and having proper contact tracing plans at least set out. And I think when the inevitable public inquiry comes into force, as undoubtedly it will after the pandemic, I think there will be so many moments when people see that there were critical times when we could and should have listened to what we were being told and we didn't. I hope one of the lessons from that absolutely will be that we will learn from that when it comes to the climate crisis. Because, you know, recently here in the UK, of course, we've had all of the Brexit debates. We've had a complete dismissal of experts and expert opinion. That, I sense, is beginning to change now. I think there is, from governments themselves, are finding it very convenient to be able to pray and aid the experts when it comes to expounding what the latest judgment is about the science. And I think it would be very strange indeed if after, at their daily briefings, having the scientists on on the pandemic setting out what needs to be done, if they refuse to do that when it comes to the climate crisis. There's been a lot of talk about a green recovery 
that one of the choices we face when we try to get the economy moving again, as we have to, because there will be so much unemployment and businesses you were talking about yourself needing to try to get going again. The choice is whether or not we just go for growth under any terms or whether we can pivot towards a green recovery. What do you think would be the main characteristics, the main elements of a kind of green recovery plan? Well, I think you know, that that is, again, one of the things that has been thought about a great deal before we got to this moment, because many of us have been talking about a so-called Green New Deal, which has basically been a way of reorientating our economies such that they will serve the climate requirements. In other words, they will work towards getting our emissions down, meeting the, the Paris climate agreements and so forth. And so, for me, something like, for example, making sure that as we come out of this pandemic, we need to ensure that the kinds of industries we're investing in and the sectors that we're investing in are ones that A, will get our climate emissions down, B, will create jobs right across the country and hopefully also support people in their homes as well. And it feels to me that something like a mass home insulation program would tick all of those boxes because you would need many, many hundreds of thousands of people to properly install alternatives to gas boilers, to properly insulate people's homes, you know, you could do it for free in the poorest homes. Actually, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that such a program in itself will begin to pay for itself quite soon because you're getting so much more tax back into the revenue through the new jobs that you're creating. So something that has been for a long time at the heart of many of the discussions about this program of Green New Deal, this mass insulation program, I think becomes even more urgent in the light of how we get business working again after the pandemic, because we want something that will be possible in every single constituency. We want something that will be fast, you know, shovel ready in the jargon. We want something that doesn't take a huge amount of investment to get up and running like HS2, you know, the major high-speed rail line. So I think it'll be those kinds of areas and sectors that can tick most of the boxes in terms of speed, in terms of climate impact, and in terms of jobs around the country. I agree with you. And one can only hope that there is serious work in government around how a recovery could be pivoted in a green direction. But even if we do that, we are going to have to change the way we live. We're going to have to change our patterns of consumption if we are going to respond in the way we need to to the climate emergency. I wonder whether there might be a kind of post-materialist turn that this crisis accelerates. So we knew that coming into the crisis, we had become more aware of the fact that beyond a certain level of for individuals and societies, the relationship between greater affluence and happiness becomes attenuated. We're more concerned about notions of well-being. We're more aware of the scale of the problem of mental illness. So a number of factors have made us kind of question some of the assumptions that underpin a kind of materialist idea that what makes you happy is being richer and more powerful and society is being richer. And then during the crisis, the way that very vividly we've been reminded of the fact that market value and social value are not the same thing because the people who are key workers are often the lowest paid, the lowest status uh, people, but they're the ones we rely on. I wonder, is that pie in the sky? But, or could this be part of the shift in consciousness we need to be able to live lives which appreciate the things that aren't to do with the market quite so much and not more to do with fulfillment and growth and development? I think there's a lot in what you say. I mean, I would just reinforce the first caveat that you gave, obviously, which is that you need to have enough in order to be able to get by and to be able to meet your needs. But beyond that, as you say, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that 
more and more affluence and more and more stuff doesn't actually make us any happier. And I think there has been something about the past few months where we have been re-evaluating what really matters. I've been reading a book, I don't know if you've read it, by Solnit, the US writer, and it's called A Paradise Built in Hell. And essentially, she's looking at the aftermaths of everything from Hurricane Katrina to the Twin Towers and so forth. And she says, disasters give us a glimpse of who else we ourselves may be and what else our society could become. And I think what she's getting at there and what she sort of sets out in the book is that there's something about a disaster, even if it's the sort that we're describing now rather than the kind of disaster she's looking at, where there is a reevaluation and things like community and neighborliness and mutual solidarity suddenly become meaningful and really important. And it does feel to me that there is a chance that those will continue to be things that we value more than stuff and that shared experiences. I've been really struck by how many people want to do things like eating together online, you know, so you're on your own, obviously, with social distancing and self-isolation and so forth, but sharing a meal at the same time and maybe the same meal that you've cooked or watching some theatre again online, but the same play at the same time so that there's a sense of conviviality. And I think by having deprived us of that conviviality, we we suddenly recognise how much we need it and how much it is part of who we are and how we make sense of our lives and our relationships. So I hope very much that it isn't pie in the sky. And I think there is a good chance that the more we get the opportunity to, to share these thoughts with each other and get the sense that actually many of us are thinking the same thing, then there's a chance that will influence the way in which we live and the kind of priorities, hopefully, that we then communicate to our policymakers and that they then reflect in policy. I'm really interested in your reference to how human beings respond to disaster. We've One of the guests we're going to have on the podcast in a couple of weeks is Rutger Bregman, whose book Humankind is all about the fact that the big secret about human beings is they're really rather nice and that actually in disasters, we generally speaking, behave very well, despite the fact that unfortunately the media often presents the reverse image. So true. And that's exactly what Solnit is saying in her book as well. And I think there's something really refreshing about the idea that We are better than the individualistic, competitive, materialistic people that we're told that we are, and we have been told that we are, you know, through decades now of sort of neoliberal economics. It's very exciting to think that actually there's more and more evidence suggesting that we're something else and we can live up to that. Karen, it's been fantastic talking to you, and I'm acutely aware of the fact that you're going to leave this conversation with me and go back to a pile of correspondence and emails from constituents who need your help. But I just want to ask you one last question, and it may be irrelevant considering how hard you're working, but have you had time, spending time working from home to develop any new enthusiasms or interests? Uh, People have been baking bread or whatever. Have you had any time to develop any kind of new enthusiasm or skill? It's not a new enthusiasm or indeed a new skill, but it's something that I've had more time to do, which is just to try to spend more time in particular looking at birds. And one of my passions are swifts. I just think swifts are the most extraordinary birds. They're so tiny. And yet a single swift can fly over a million miles because it's migrating between parts of Africa and and back here to Brighton. And one of the things we've done is we already had a, a swift box put up on the house just before Christmas. And so each evening I've been out with my bit of music playing swift songs, hoping that as they migrate back to the UK, they will hear the sound of the compatriot swifts and will come and live in our swift box because that, I am advised, is the best way of trying to attract them to come. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about swifts and listening to their song and playing it out in my garden. 
What a wonderful image to end with. Caroline Lucas, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.